Cowabunga, dear listeners. This is your host, Bree, here to just give you a brief note before the episode. Kyle and I recorded this on Sunday, July 17th, and unfortunately, due to a technical snafu, we lost a short amount of audio, about 20 minutes near the end of what was a very long, like, two-and-a-half-hour podcast. <laughs> there is good news. We did manage to salvage both the lightning round and the peak segment. We essentially got through the chronology and our discussions on Kevin Smith, but there were a few things missing, particularly our discussion on Harvey Weinstein, culpability, what Smith has done to make it right, if he's done enough to make it right. I don't think anything we left out was that crucial or groundbreaking, but you do hear me say throughout the episode, yeah, we're going to talk about this later, and obviously we don't, so that's why. Um, If you want to know any of our feelings about the subject, you can feel free to hit us up on Twitter. The important part is you will not get through this episode without a lightning round or without knowing what the peak of Kevin Smith is. So thank you, Kyle, and thank you to you, the listeners, for listening. Enjoy the show. Well, for part of Russia, you're from? Moscow. He only speaks Russian? Nah, I speak some English, but he cannot speak good like we do. Is he staying here? Nah, he's moving to the big city this week. He wants to be a metal singer. No way. I swear, Olaf, metal. That's his fucking metal face. Olaf, girl, nice. Skrullnik. That's fucked up, man. What did he say? I don't know, man, but this guy's a character. He really wants to play metal? Yeah, he's got his own band in Moscow. It's called Fuck Your Yankee Blue Jeans or something like that. That doesn't sound metal. You gotta hear him sing Olaf, Berserker. Come on, man, Berserker. Does he sing in English or Russian? In English. Come on, Berserker. Girls think sexy. Ah. I'll watch, wait, he's gonna sing and watch, it's too funny. My love for you is like a truck bell Would you like some making fuck bell That's fucking funny, man. Did he say making fuck? Welcome to Peak Show, where we try not to suck any dick on our way out of the parking lot. I'm your host, Jorts Enjoyer, Bree Rohde, and who is with me on the line today? Uh, I'm Kyle Martinak, and I'm not even supposed to be here today. <laughs> it's true, you actually weren't supposed to be here today. Um, today, we happen to be discussing our last filmmaker of the season. Season 2 has really been the season of filmmakers. And things got a little mixed up with our season two schedule, and uh, due to some unforeseen circumstances, we pushed our Coen Brothers episode to next year, but we wanted to do this director because he's been in the news lately, not only because he's got a highly anticipated movie coming out, he has kind of correctly told everyone to shut up, shut the fuck up about Martin Scorsese and Marvel movies. Uh, if you haven't guessed it, we're talking about the jorts man himself, Kevin Smith. Um, and Kyle, I, I feel like you've become the, the comedy movie bro guy around here, which is funny because you are the least bro-ish person I know. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, to because I know you are so much more than movies. Maybe you and Kelsey can do like a peak of the Vancouver Canucks episode or something someday. <laughs> uh, I, I'd be struggling to, to keep up with her because I didn't really learn anything about NHL hockey until I had a team closer to me. But... I mean, I, I am wearing a nice vintage Canucks uh, shirt right now, so. That is the best logo. For those of you, since this is, of course, an audio medium, it is the classic uh, red and uh, red and yellow skate logo of the Canucks. Much, well, I mean, 
the the current logo was designed by an indigenous artist, which is very cool. So I don't want to diss that, but it's just those those damn colors. I love them so much. So, <laughs> um, and this is actually relevant also because Kevin Smith, big hockey guy, um, and uh, I don't think he hasn't really expressed an affinity for many other sports, has he? <clears throat> no, no. Hockey is really the only one that he's ever had any knowledge or affinity for, and. You know, it, it goes all the way back to clerks and, you know, pre-clerks hanging out at the rec center with his buddies. But he's actually partially responsible for me getting into hockey in the first place. So that's also oh, that's a awesome. connecting point. Yeah, I, I was just watching uh, rewatching the Clerks 3 trailer and I'm just struggling to think, you know, prior to them, you know, actually seeing the appearance of a New Jersey Devils jersey in that the devils don't get a lot of a lot of love in his even though he is a jersey boy like he's he's a rangers man you know which makes sense you know original six like i mean um, he he had uh jersey uh, devils uh tickets he had he had a uh, season tickets that i'm pretty sure most of them went to walt flanagan who is the real <laughs> jersey super fan in his little mm-hmm. group of buddies like i i seem to remember at one point he got to go and meet a couple of legendary uh, Devils players on an episode of Comic Book Men that Kevin arranged for him. And that was very sweet because he just fell into a puddle. Mm-hmm. But um, Well, see, and all this talk of Jersey, like I feel like one of the things I was talking about with you in our Judd Apatow episode, and I've talked about with other people just um, a lot of the TV shows I like, a lot of the movies I like, I'm, I'm so sick of L.A., I, I, it's like, I get it. That's where writers live and you write what you know, but you know what I can't relate to LA or California or any beautiful people. And so, um, I don't think I've actually been to New Jersey. I absolutely do not count the Newark airport as New Jersey because that's where people who are going to New York go. (laughs) Um, my, I have a cousin who lives in New Jersey, so I won't speak ill of it. What I will say is that I think I've always said Ontario is the Midwest of Canada, but Southern Ontario might also kind of be like a bit of the New Jersey of Canada in that like there's there's cities and there's nice parts and there's water but then there's farm fields and then there's towns where you just look at someone the wrong way and you'll get beaten up which is very Jersey I think <laughs> yeah I've, I've um, never been myself except for the Newark airport as well but yeah. uh yeah I think that's one thing that did endear a lot of people to Kevin Smith early on in his career was the idea of He's sticking around in New Jersey. He's making his movies in New Jersey with his buddies who are from Mm -hmm. New Jersey. It's very authentic. And then he moved to L.A. and it became very L.A. centric. You can kind of see it. Yeah, I do like that, you know, and we'll we'll talk a lot about Zack and Miri, but I like that for Zack and Miri, he's like, fuck it. It's in Pennsylvania. Like, um, and uh, Monroeville is a is a. Uh, suburb of Philadelphia. I don't know Pennsylvania particularly well, but um... yeah, I'm not sure. Except I know that if if I remember my film nerd uh, credentials properly, I think Monroeville might be where uh, uh, Dawn of the Dead, where the mall is in Dawn of the Dead. I, I think, think that so. was a big deal. Was that he was shooting Zach and Mary in the same mall that Dawn of the Dead originally was shot in? Maybe. Which isn't there a thing in that where the hockey team that Seth Rogen is on is the Monroeville murderers or something? I think it might be the um, Monroeville zombies. Zombies. Yes, that's exactly it. Um, I was just in Pennsylvania like two days ago, um, but I was in um, 
I, I was in uh, <laughs> the middle of Trump country, let me tell you. Um, and uh, I don't know if it's the septum ring or <laughs> possibly that something about me to these folks definitely screams Democrat. Oh, it might have it might have been the proactive COVID precautions that screamed Democrat. But <laughs> yeah, the, the tattoos, the piercings, the mask to protect yourself and others. Yeah, that makes sense. I like to confront uncomfortable things with funny voices. That makes me um, enjoy it more. And so as I was uh, driving through with my colleagues, I was like, 12, 12 thin blue line flags. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> um, <laughs> between uh, rural New York, because uh, we cross over in Buffalo, and then it very quickly gets weird. And then, although it, to, to say nice things about the beautiful state of Pennsylvania, um, I didn't realize that the Appalachian Mountains went that, like, went in that far into Pennsylvania and driving through them was one of the most surreal, gorgeous experiences I've ever seen. Um, I mean, I've driven into the Canadian Rockies before from Calgary, which is like a constant ascent up. Um, this was very like up and down, like a roller coaster and these like hairpin turns. Um, I, uh, I wish I'd been driving because I definitely got sick doing it, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was, it was gorgeous. But then I was like, uh, what I read about Pennsylvania is there's Pittsburgh and then there's Philadelphia and everything in between might as well be Alabama, um, which I th obviously politically. Um, and so that's uh, which actually it's funny, though, because we're talking about, you know, a director who kind of chooses to stick around and do his own thing in his hometown. Uh, not unlike another one we've covered this uh, this season, M. Night Shyamalan. And, you know, I, I think much like Kevin Smith, you can argue that he had a really strong period and then he had a not so great period. And now he has a period where he's just kind of farting around doing his own thing. And sometimes it's good and rarely it's great. Um, I've got a whole theory that's speaking a lot to what you, to what you're talking about. Uh, but yeah, uh, to, you know, speaking geographically about it. Yeah. I mean, once he moved to L.A., he did, you know a lot of the things that his early movies are talking about, about this kind of, you know, <clears throat> not middle-aged, but like quarter age malaise about, you know, being stuck in your hometown and knowing more than you, you know, be being what's the phrase that keeps getting thrown around with clerks, uh, overeducated and uh, uh, yeah. under motivated. And mm -hmm. once he moved to LA, he kind of ran out of, you know, problems to, you know, therapy out onto the page and suddenly his stuff became about uh, the movie industry because that's what was frustrating him at the time and yeah. that's less relatable to the rest of us especially those of us who did work in convenience stores and whatnot we're still technically in the intro but i just thought of something um and because uh, <laughs> it's uh it, it's been on my mind ever since i said this about chris pratt in our um in our Parks and Rec episode last year, because uh, like big congratulations to Kevin Smith for all the weight he's lost, and oh, yeah. um, like absolutely awesome that he is still as of this year following a vegan diet. Love that. Love that for love that for us. Love us. Love that for us vegans. Um, did he stop being funny when he stopped being chubby? Because um, <laughs> you know I. I love a funny fat guy. You know. <laughs> um, I would argue that uh, the the weight. The weight difference, I mean, hey, look, there are a lot of people who will argue that he stopped being funny when he became a stoner for real and not just a pretend stoner. So yep. <laughs> you could use some of these milestones as the marker for when 
he kind of shifted into being a relic of some, you know, bygone era. But I don't know. I think the weight loss, I don't really see much of a difference in uh, the corresponding comedy quality. But I think there is something to be said about people like a jolly large fella. You know, it, it helps. Yeah. It's it's funny, though, because as different as he looks, I still like because his like especially facially like he's lost so much weight in his face Mm -hmm. he looks i don't want to say he looks so much older because he is what 52 years old and so he looks to me like just like a regular 52 year old but sometimes like having that extra chub in your face can make you look younger than you are um but when i look at him now um his face like in the clerks 3 trailer he does just look like original silent bob because he was i think a little thinner when he first played silent bob back when back in the original clerks so um and it's once you put the the baseball cap on him and the wig and stuff that he just really becomes silent bob again so and it's that um bewildered look and i, I can't even i mean there's no point in doing it because audio medium but uh if i may yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Sorry, audience. Just imagine it. Um, so, since you're kind of one of our like designated movie guys, we're about halfway through the year. Can you tell me either some of your favorite watches or rewatches from this year, just to kind of get us get us warmed up for talking movies? Yeah, I mean, boy, you 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 gave me so much credit saying I'm not a a broy person of any kind, but <laughs> there's only one movie I've seen in the cinema twice this summer, and it is Top Gun Maverick. Um, All right. My my brother and I grew up watching the original one constantly with my old man, just the two of us together on like a summer day. We were really into airplanes. There's an air show in my hometown that we could watch from our backyard every summer. Oh, cool. That's lovely. Very into jet fighters as kids. And so we loved that movie. The new one, finally, after what felt like three years of waiting for it finally came out. And my brother grabbed me and said, you and I are doing that one. We're going to go to that one. Just the two of us. We haven't gone to a movie, just the two of us in 10 years. We both have kids now, so we don't get to do that anymore. And so we went, we had a terrific time. We went back for a second slice, the both of us with our older boys and, and they loved it. You know, they, I, I think they, might have kicked out a little bit while people were talking but every time there was a plane on screen they lit up and my son (laughs) we went uh all the way on the fourth of july to my aunt's house like a three-hour drive the whole time he's pretending that there are enemy planes out the window that he's trying to shoot (laughs) down i'm like this is great i think you know there's something to be said about military propaganda but it's all pretend to him you know it's just like star wars i uh you know I was into a lot of propaganda as a child, and uh, we all know how I turned out, so it's all good. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so our our local movie theater, it's fantastic because this is the first time since I was 10 years old that I've lived in a city or a town who, that doesn't have a chain theater. Yeah. It is a f- independent theater. It's the only one, so it has 100% of the market share, two screens. Problem when it's a two-screen theater in a town of 15,000 or 13,000, whatever we are, is... Um, it only really bothers um, putting out the big stuff. And by the big stuff, I also mean like more family friendly. Um, I think when I, I recalled, because I was looking through pictures I took the day we closed on the house, uh, they were playing old that that day, which like speaking of Shyamalan, so that might be, I, I think that was an R-rated one. Yeah. But for the most but but in Canada, an R usually will go down to a 14A. So you just have to be like a teenager to go see it. Um so 
Um, but for the most part, they get the Marvel movies. They get like so like all summer. It's been Top Gun and Minions. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or and what was the we just I guess we just had a Marvel one that came out. Uh, Thor. Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. So it's um, so I I haven't. I haven't seen a lot of great ones this year in in the theaters, but I did really love RRR. Um, that was yeah, that's just Chef's Kiss. Yeah, it's in my yeah. queue. Uh, we haven't had time to sit and watch it, but my wife actually, when we first started dating, uh, she worked at a local uh, motel owned by an Indian family, and she would do overnight shifts in their apartment that was built into the lobby, like right behind the the lobby, like the counter. There was a door that led right into their apartment. So she stayed in their house more than her own house for a couple of years. And <laughs> I would go over and visit with her, spend the night in the in the motel, kind of helping out. I'd check people in at like two o'clock in the morning and whatnot. And she's just like, I'm throwing on this Bollywood movie that they've got. So I <laughs> we watched a lot of really cool Bollywood action movies. And I... I, I got excited about RRR the second I heard it. I'm like, she'll like this one. This is one we can watch together. Yeah, I'm really hoping this will be like a great opportunity for a lot of people who have maybe been aware of Bollywood movies but never knew where to access them or never considered them accessible. People actually just like getting into them and finding some because um, I love Bollywood movies because I love Bhangra dance and I love like how big the productions get and stuff. And so um, there are a few that I know only for their dances, but yeah, RRR, hard recommend. Uh, so now when we last had you on the show, we were asking like, when was your peak? And you told us that you feel kind of you peaked senior year of high school, doing lots of theater, met your wife. But our season two tradition, we are asking our guests to tell us about a moment in their life that is peak them. So can you tell us, Kyle, what's what's a moment that is peak Kyle? Um, I've got a good one for you. It's uh, maybe like <laughs> 10, 11 years ago, I got my first office job. Like I got out of university. I was, uh, you know, English degree. So naturally, I started stocking shelves at the grocery store. That was my first job out of university. <laughs> and then... I did landscaping for uh, my buddy's father uh, ran, ran a landscaping team. So I did that for a bit. And then I got my first office gig and my first day happened to be Halloween. So Kyle being Kyle, <laughs> I show up for my, I see where this is going. I show up in costume, just my head about to explode, wondering if I'm going to be the only person in this third floor office building who's in costume. I went with something fairly tame costume wise. It was, I think this is like 2011. So I was really big on Sons of Anarchy. So I show up in a uh, motorcycle club cut with the Reaper, hanging the Reaper on my back. I've got, you know, tempo tattoos up my <laughs> arms because I didn't have any tattoos at the time. Uh, and yeah, just like looking like I'm not ready for an office gig basically it was a really poor judgment call on on my behalf luckily you know thank goodness I'm not the only person in costume my new boss is in costume just dressed elegantly as a witch a nice you know office friendly <laughs> witch costume other people dressed yeah. up but no like face makeup or anything crazy and then I realize, oh, right, it's day one. I'm locked in a training room with one other person and the person training us <laughs> all day. The other person is a 65-year-old woman who is giving me 
a look like are you are you for real what why would you think that this was a smart idea and then i had to leave the training room to go to the break room for lunch or coffee or whatever and i'm getting stares all over but it's a sons of anarchy costume in 2011 so one guy comes in happened to be uh this was an office that was doing it was a call center for behavioral health emergencies some of them so we had therapists working in the office answering calls people you know in crisis one of them was a dude who was a he was a motorcycle dude he was a biker and he walks in he sees my cut and he goes that's just a costume right like you're not right (laughs) and i'm like yeah no i'm (laughs) it's a halloween thing i don't even ride and he just goes yeah okay that's pretty cool and he walks away i'm like oh thank goodness oh that could have gone oh, man, so I hope, many different I, directions. I thought this was going in a direction of my culture is not a costume. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. Thankfully, that guy was very chill. And he he and I kind of connected on a lot of stuff. He was a very cool dude. But yeah, from then on, whenever we caught each other in the parking lot, he's getting on his bike and he's just like, go back to your cage, Kyle. Go that way. <laughs> yeah. All right. Fine. I, th- I think, and this might actually be a peak pre moment, because uh, I have almost the opposite experience of you. Um, so um, we all know from the lore on this that I just absolutely hated my last job and uh, that, you know, it took everything from me. Um, actually, I-, I found out something really interesting. Um, Kyle, do you know what the rads are is? Say it again. Sorry. Uh, the the rads are is that the uh, it's it's a like a neurological test. Am I right? It's an autism, autism test, test, essentially. Okay. Yeah. So um, I took the RADS R because my brother uh, recently got an autism diagnosis at the age of like 35. And um, maybe four or five months into my new job, took the RADS R. And it's like, if you get 60, like 60 is kind of the minimum range of on the spectrum. And I was like 65. And I was like, whoa, really? Okay. And then I was like, I guess that kind of makes sense. But then I didn't really feel like pursuing anything because I'm just like, I don't know if a diagnosis would actually do that much for me. I'm fine with the way things are. I've learned to adjust my life. I took it again about a month or two ago and I was low 40s. And as I uh, spoke to someone who was more of an expert in that field, uh, they were talking about like, you had profound burnout from your last job your burnout is going to affect a lot of your social behavior and your perceptions of social behavior. So I was basically, I was so burnt out that I was displaying, um, I guess what one would call autistic traits. Um, So yeah, that was, that was how bad my, how down bad I was for my last job. Um, I happened to quit it on Halloween day. Now this was Halloween 2020. So I was at home which meant I could dress up as much as I wanted. Now, I um, <laughs> I like to go for, um, I don't want to say obscure, because I don't consider this an obscure thing, but just something that no one would think to dress up as. I went as Adam Sandler in Billy Madison. <laughs> I was wearing like a torn up sweater on top of a t-shirt with a black or uh, with a white backwards cap and big khaki shorts. And uh, as I'm quitting over Zoom and my manager is so pissed at me. <laughs> I just look at her and my first thing to do is flip my shirt on which I've scrawled Frank and said, hey, it's okay. I stole this shirt from Frank. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, man. I, I uh, As but, soon as you said tore up sweater, it it popped right into my head in my mind's eye. I That's an iconic look a little bit. 
if if I had been in my office, I probably would have danced out to Boy George. Um, <laughs> and rightfully <laughs> listeners, so. Listeners, listen to our Adam Sandler episode. <laughs> uh, so now, before we get into the history of Kevin Smith, we, of course, want to talk your history with Kevin Smith. So can you tell us about the first time you ever saw a Kevin Smith movie and how you followed his career from there? Yeah. Um, so uh, it's a really weird roundabout introduction to Kevin Smith, because I think the first time I ever heard his name, he was hosting some kind of... Uh, I don't know if it was online or maybe it was on the IFC channel, but it was a Star Wars fan film like awards like for people who made like real like real player era uh, films online that were Star Wars <laughs> fan videos. So there was like the Ryan versus Dorkman lightsaber battles, uh, the Star Wars rap cartoon that was very popular, uh, but it was hosted by. Kevin Smith, quote unquote, the world's biggest Star Wars fan was how it was billed. I kind of chafed at that. I'm like, I don't even know who this guy is. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, I had caught bits and pieces of dogma on probably censored on Comedy Central, but I didn't know what it was. It was just a matter of like uh, uh, it was it was just a matter of like Chris Rock and Selma Hayek are in it. What do we, what do we have here? Uh, no idea what it was. Didn't catch a whole lot of it. And uh, mall rats was just known as a movie on the shelf at Hollywood video that my parents were like, no, we're not doing that. Uh, my brother. So, uh, he showed me clerks, sat me down and showed me, uh, like a VHS that he rented, f- uh, for clerks. And that was a big moment of course. Cause I'm like, this counts as a movie. I think maybe I could make a movie then, <laughs> which I think is a very common reaction. to. Clerks. Oh Yeah. And then from there, you know, I caught everything else via the video store. But I think my big introduction to who Kevin Smith was, was it was dead of summer. I'm bored. So I ride my bike to the video store. Uh, There's a theme going of me hanging out in a video store quite a Mm -hmm. bit. Oh, and here's my dog. Don't knock over the camera. Don't knock over the camera. She's knocking over the camera. Uh, But. Yeah, so I rode my bike to the video store and I found in the special interest section a uh, a DVD called An Evening with Kevin Smith. Okay, yeah. And I was just getting into stand-up comedy at the time. I had just discovered George Carlin's specials and I knew that they had a connection through Dogma because he was in that. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. let me give this a shot. I took it over to my friend Danny's house and the two of us sat there eating pizza watching what we didn't realize was four hours long of these, uh, you know, college uh, Q and A's that Kevin Smith did all these stories of behind the scenes of the movies, but also he's like talking like a teenager talking about his dick, talking about, (laughs) you know, what, what, you know, some jerk said to him at, at an awards show or something like that. I'm like, Oh, this is, you know, star Wars was what got me into movies Kevin Smith in this moment, I think, got me into the the whole circus behind the scenes of the movie industry. Like, is this really how ridiculous it is where people's publicists just call each other up saying, and also, he's a dick, you know, tell, tell him I said that, too. <laughs> so, you know, the the Superman story, the Prince story, all the classics were right there. And from there, I took a deep dive and became a super awesome. fan. Um yeah, I, I think mine was a bit more, um, not as roundabout, a bit more haphazard. And uh, 
yeah, second, I, I guess third episode in a row that doesn't involve me seeing something at an inappropriately young age. Um, I did not see Clerks when I was five years old, uh, so that's good. Um, yeah, that uh, no, the first thing I saw, and I think this is actually a totally, it might seem young, I think it's a totally sensible and appropriate age to see. I saw Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back when I was 12. <gasps> that's such a cute dog. Sorry. Folks, oh, yeah. uh, audio medium, but uh, <laughs> Kyle's dog is a very cute mop. Um, but um, she's filthy uh, too. She's been mopping. Um, <laughs> yeah, but exactly. um, yeah. So I mean, I think I probably must have seen it with my brother because it was summertime, two thousand and one. Uh, and let me tell you, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. When you don't know the lore of Jay and Silent Bob. It's not that it's a lot to pay attention to because like the the film operates pretty independently, but I did have a bit of like a, like, why are these characters the way they are? I don't think I understood stoner comedy yet. Like what is like, why am I supposed to care about these guys and stuff? So it really, and I think maybe a year before was when Dude Wears My Car came out. And so I was maybe like expecting Mm -hmm. a bit of a silly misadventure thing kind of like that. And it... It kind of was in a similar tone, and neither of those I liked when I saw. Um, you know, was one of those things yeah. kind of like Dude Wears My. I mean, I do think Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back is better than Dude Wears My Car, but it was the kind of thing that, you know, it's not that I was thinking this at the time because I don't think a twelve-year-old thinks this, but um, I was kind of like, who is this for? You know, years down the road, like who is this for? Because, it, but then you know, I came to realize Kevin Smith makes movies for Kevin Smith. Um, you know, he makes yeah, he makes absolutely. movies because Jeff Anderson needs a paycheck. No. <laughs> um, oh, that's so mean. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, yeah. Um, so then I think the next thing I saw was Dogma. Um, and I saw that when I was... Um, I don't know if I've ever said this on the air, but folks who have listened to me since season one, episode six, uh, Canadian Indie with Luke Levier, uh, he was my boyfriend in high school. We dated for a long time. And I think it was the day that we started dating. We watched that ha- that movie in a friend's basement with a bunch of people. We were like secretly holding hands under the blanket and stuff. Um, and yeah, because I have a very distinct memory of where I watched that on, I guess it would have been November 12th, 2005. Um, and because I was getting into my kind of anti-religion, but like, or I was, I'd say that was when I was getting over my anti-religion and more like, there's a lot to learn about religion, but religious people fucking suck kind of stage that a lot of high schoolers go through, like the slightly more reasonable than the atheists, uh, teenagers. Um, but then I still didn't quite take an active interest in Kevin Smith until I saw Clerks 2, which I saw before I'd seen Clerks 1. Now, I think the nice thing about Clerks 2 is you don't have to have seen Clerks 1 to, like, get anything. Um, Certainly there's a lot of, like, inside jokes and fun references back, but it's very... Who the characters are is reestablished quite efficiently, and um, I think maybe I... That one I saw with my sister. It's rare I see movies with my sister, but I think she was home for the holidays and we like watched it while we were setting up our Christmas tree, which was fun. Um, That was how I learned what a donkey show was. Um... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how many people do. Yeah. Like <laughs> um well, I mean that that whole thing gave off the vibe of Kevin Smith just learned what a donkey show is. <laughs> but um Yep, exactly. Yes, but um 
Uh, and I think part of the reason why it appealed to me was because I had just seen the movie. I'm sure you remember this movie, Waiting, uh, from 2005. Um, oh, yeah. That was oh, a yeah. big one. Um, uh, and uh, I, I kind of liked, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. It's like the menial workplace comedy. And so that was when I actively sought out clerks and then went basically went through chronologically. Um, I even gave Jersey Girl a chance. Um Big mistake. Uh, and then where I... F- oh, that, we're going to have to disagree on Jersey Girl because I actually always liked it. I'm one of those weirdos. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I will say this now. Um, I don't think it's the worst thing he's ever done. I don't um, at all. But Oh, that's that's an easy yeah. one. No, it is not. <laughs> and then I uh, was pretty excited to see Zach and Miri. Um, I didn't even realize uh, until like retroactively looking back that Zach and Miri performed so poorly. Um, and uh, which kind of answered my question as to where's Kevin Smith been the last few years. Um, I didn't see like when he kind of ventured into the horror stuff. I didn't see that at the time. I saw it a couple years later. Um uh, and I did in 2012, in my last year of school, see an evening with Kevin Smith performance live. Um, we'll talk about that later because it, it's shaped a lot of what I think or what I thought about him at the time and what I think about him now. Um, but I think there is a when I broke up with my university boyfriend, um, he was uh, the, the bad kind of film bro, like not, not the bad kind of film bro, because he looked, he liked good movies, but it was more just, if you don't like this movie that I like, or if you like this movie that I don't like, you fucking suck. Like you're so fucking stupid. Mm. And I'm just, I mean, to his credit, he did introduce me to teeth, which is a great, a great (laughs) Halloween watch. (laughs) It's great to trick someone into watching that movie. (laughs) But, um, but I, that's that's a formative yeah. watch right but there. But after that relationship <laughs> ended, I so was I it's safe safe to say I wasn't much into movies at all after that relationship ended, but I also especially wasn't into movies that appealed to college guys. And so that was why I took my time off of Kevin Smith and didn't start rewatching his stuff until a couple of years later. I think it was actually when he had his heart attack that I looked and I'm like, "Oh, he's actually mm-hmm. been up to quite a bit." And so I watched some of the horror movies. I watched the the Jay and Silent Bob reboot. Um, I think of his um, of his movies, the only things I haven't seen, I haven't seen the entirety of Clerks the Animated Series. It's like impossible to find in Canada. Um, it is. It's impossible to find here too. It's basically only exists on DVD and maybe on iTunes yeah. and that's it. It's nowhere um, else. I, I even saw Cop Out, uh, which I know is like more of a director for hire kind of thing. Um, I didn't, I, I saw Tusk, but not Yoga Hosers, which like that, that movie might as well not exist. And I have not seen Kilroy was here, um, which I know has either just come out or is coming, but there's some sort of weird like NFT stuff attached to it, which uh, yeah, even Tony Hawk is doing that shit now. It, it, to quote Magatu, which I often do, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> yeah it's uh the nft thing was a real disappointment for for kevin smith because i mean you know if you if you view him from a far enough distance you realize yeah of course he's going to get into nfts because i think once you know like post what right around jay and bob strike back was when he kind of became a lot of uh just a merchandising dynamo mm-hmm. 
he realized, okay, I've got a big enough fan base to where if we make a plastic bobble, enough of them will get bought in order for it to justify the expense. He's, he's always been thinking about, you know, what can we sell on that website of ours? What can we, what can we plug? What can we move around to, to make a couple dollars out of this IP of mine? And the NFT thing makes perfect sense because I know somebody came to him and convinced him, no, this is one of the good (laughs) ones. This is one of the ones that's not bad for the environment and bad for the economy and bad for just, just like kind of also a pain in the ass to even know it it exists. No, this is a good one. Oh, Kevin. Um, yeah, I, uh, it's giving Krusty the clown. It really is. Yeah, yeah. And I don't, you know, he's always been pretty open about being essentially Krusty the Clown to the point where he wears a costume pretty much in his day to day life the way Krusty Mm -hmm. does. I, um, okay, so when I was looking up, uh, like just throwing together my research for this film, since again, I cannot emphasize this enough, folks, this is a very put to rush together episode. I know Kyle and I sound like we're fucking killing it right now. That's Kyle pulling all the weight. I, I've been in a farm field for a week. You know, I've been, you know, trying to literally outrun clouds of manure. Um, you know, have you ever been a... What a relaxing retreat. Oh, you know, like <laughs> I thought because I live in an agricultural area and I get wafts of manure all the time. I thought I was very used to the smell, like I didn't even mind it. Turns out uh, I haven't been uh, 10 feet away from a liquid manure pit that's being agitated before. I will never forget that feeling. It was also like a fucking hundred degrees that- out. So, Yeah. Oh, that stings my eyes just you telling oh, me. Oh yeah, that. like when when the gas thing starts beeping and you got to back up. You know what though? I so I saw so many of fat little Amish kids. It was really cute. Um <laughs> but yeah, so I've been too busy running from manure and hurting fat little Amish kids um to um to do a lot of work on this. Uh, so this is truly Brie Charmingly paraphrasing Wikipedia. I had no idea that he did an uncredited rewrite on one of my favorite underrated movies, Coyote Ugly. Coyote Ugly. Which, I knew you were going to yeah, say it. Yeah, which I mean, I guess the, the New Jersey is all over that movie. But um, uh, and, and I guess not a lot of what he wrote stayed in. But something about that seems very Kevin Smith. And I do like to imagine uh, that he, you know, if Kevin Smith really had his way with that, he would have written in a part for his wife. Um, but uh, I I love. Yeah, probably. I love how he is convinced that his wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. Um, and at first I used to kind of make fun of that because I'm like, she's not even that pretty. But I'm like, you know what? She is the most pretty woman in the world to him. And I think that's so sweet. It, it is sweet absolutely and i think i've nailed down yesterday i nailed it down in the car because preparing to to talk to you about it today i went back and i kind of listened to evening with kevin smith because i i have a passing knowledge of what he's doing now and a, a picture in my head of who he is now and I'm, i haven't gone back and watched 32 year old kevin smith talk to college kids <laughs> in so long And now I'm older than he was in that, which is trippy. (laughs) Time works that way, but to me it's weird. And I'm listening to it and he's telling the story of how they met and how, you know, the punchline being. And then, you know, after our wonderful first date, she dry humps me to the point where my dick gets cut really horribly. So, you know, it's a funny cute, but also really disgusting story. Very much in the vein of early Kevin Smith. 
But <clears throat> what I nailed down and I excitedly told my wife, cause we're in the car on the way to the zoo with the kids and everything. I'm like, I get it now. He was told that uh, USA Today uh, reporter was going to come and interview him about uh, Goodwill Hunting, about Ben and Matt, and he's expecting a fifty-year-old man with <laughs> you know cigar smoke, and this you know attractive young woman comes through the door. She's Lois Lane. That's the reason why he instantly fell for her, <laughs> and that's why the, very famously, you know, they were doing a series where famous filmmakers were shooting. Uh, photo shoots for like Playboy. And he said, I want to do it as with my wife as the model. And she's going to be like, you know, cuddling up to Superman on a rooftop. So cute. It's because she's Lois Lane. And he was so impressed with the fact that somebody, you know, his age was writing for USA Today, which he, you know, hey, when I was, you know, just a couple of years ago, I was putting together this paper at the convenience store and you write for it. Mm -hmm. So what the hell am I doing with my life? You won a couple Indie Spirit Awards today. (laughs) That's what you were doing. Oh, right. Yeah. But I I found that detail so hilarious that it he instantly was smitten with the fact that Lois Lane came through his door. That is so sweet. Yeah. Like for, for all my gripes about uh, Kevin Smith and really a lot of it is more like what uh, the way some people have react or what some people have taken away from his films. There is something that is and remains incredibly endearing about him. Um, and that is one of the many things. Um, so yeah, he, I think, I think Kevin Smith had, one of those like mo- very aggressively normy upbringings. His dad was a postman, um, and of course grew up in New Jersey. Um, and you know the whole thing. And he he says this. He said this in an evening with Kevin Smith, uh, which at the one I saw then segued into um, a bit about the relationship between Wayne and Walter Gretzky, but about how he you know wanted so badly to never hate his job um, because his father uh, hated being a postal worker, which I feel like lends itself to a lot of very inappropriate jokes. Uh, He kind of, you know, fumbled his way through high school and then um, eventually moves to the moves on to the Vancouver Film School, which he did like one semester of and felt like he learned enough. you could read that one of two ways. You could read that as like those, again, I hate using this term over and over, but like the film bro, like, you know, I don't need to learn theory. Um, but also as someone who has a minor in film studies, um, film studies are incredibly theoretical. And I think they are very, very, that theory is very, very valuable. That doesn't teach you how to make movies. Um yeah. yeah, like it teaches you how to study movies and that's great, but it's kind of like I have a, I like you have a degree in English literature. Nothing taught me how to write. So, um, and yeah, yeah, he, uh, and I think it was at Vancouver Film School where he met Scott Mosier, uh, with whom he would uh, eventually found his production company. And, um, uh, it was Richard Linklater who, um, set most of his movies in Texas who inspired him to, do a movie that was set in New Jersey. I think everyone kind of knows the folklore of Clerks, that he maxed out credit cards, sold his comic book collection, uh, and shot on, the impressively, shot on a budget of less than what I made at my first terrible magazine job, which was not very much. <laughs> um, and uh, he had to film it at night. Again, I don't, I don't feel like I need to tell anyone this because everyone knows that's why they don't have the windows open in that movie. Um, debuted at Sundance and attracted uh, the attention of a literal human monster 
um, whom we're going to unfortunately have to talk about. Uh, you have to. If you're talking about Kevin Smith, you have to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, so uh, Harvey Weinstein offered to buy the movie, and, uh, you know, it was because of the power of Weinstein. Is it Weinstein or Weinstein? I don't know. I've I, Weinstein, I've always yeah. heard it as. Okay, uh, so because of the power of Weinstein, that really it was able to get over one of the biggest hurdles, which was the NC-17 rating, um, which... I understand why you'd give that the whole like sex with a dead guy thing. But when you think about what like what we've got in theaters now and in the past couple of years, not just comedy, but like because because a lot of comedy, I think, has become very neutered in the last couple of decades. But I'm thinking like the fucking torture porn that we all went through in the 2000s uh, that clerks getting an NC-17 when are there even boobs in clerks? No, oh. not at all. The The thing about clerks is that it's NC-17 and like how raunchy its uh, its reputation was. It's very much like the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That movie has almost no violence in mm-hmm. it. It's all implied by the score, by the acting. You know, th- there there are very big moments that feel violent, but nothing horribly gorific is depicted. Clerks is the same way. There's so much raunchy dialogue that invokes images in your brain of something really really not safe for film and not safe for anybody under 17 but Mm -hmm. none of that's actually in the movie yeah like at worst i mean i'd say like the 37 uh the 37 dicks conversation try not to suck any dick on the way to the parking lot and the sex with a dead guy bit is like and, and maybe Randall reading the um, the porn titles, uh, which I've tried really hard to memorize that uh, at some point. But <laughs> all I remember is all fills hold with hot all all holes filled with hot cum. Um, God, the one that always gets me the most is and it's not at the end, so it's not the punchline of this long list. It's just right in the middle, snuck in there is Men Alone Two, the KY connection. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, they did successfully, uh, sue and get it down to an R. Um, I don't know how much Clerks grossed, uh, but it did manage to just, I think it made kind of every decade list, top 100, top 1000, thousand movies you gotta see before you die kind of thing. Um, considered one of the most influential movies of the 90s, followed up with Mallrats a couple years later, um, huge bomb which again i i didn't yeah. know that it was a huge bomb uh because by the time i was a teenager Mallrats was this cult classic already um made 2.2 mm-hmm. million dollars that could not even get you or that could get you a nice house in toronto in like the annex but like not any of the actual rich neighborhoods so <laughs> um yeah that one was uh it, it was a big disappointment uh it was also one of the few things that he didn't do with the Weinsteins, that was a uh, mm. contract with Universal. So the studio, you know, threw notes at him like, you're basically a first time filmmaker. This is your first film. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but I made a film already. They're like, well, that's not a real movie, is it? He's like, I yeah. guess it isn't, you know. So it, it really at the time it had the reputation of being its clerks in a mall, but really watered down really kind of aimed at the clueless market yeah you know but it's it's not you know it it doesn't have the same vibe as like a clueless or really anything aimed at young people at the time like even like a wayne's world yeah and and again we'll talk further about the weinstein connection and i got some stuff in my notes but like 
when when you think of the fact that like clearly everyone knew what Weinstein was up to at some point or another, whether or not Kevin Smith knew in the early 90s, I don't know. I don't care to speculate on it. But you do kind of understand the power that someone like him held over people, which is how he managed to uh, continue being a monster for so long. And you think of a guy like Kevin Smith probably thought, at least in his younger years, that he owed so much to him because he saw how successful something like Clerks was able to be with him and how unsuccessful he was without him, because I know that marketing was largely what Mallrat's failure was blamed on. Um, yeah. Then, uh, you know, goes goes back to literal human monster Harvey Weinstein uh, for chasing Amy, um, much, much more well-earning, earned $12 million, um, one independent Off of a awards. much smaller budget, too. Yeah, like, I don't... It's hard to really uh, contextualize like how big Ben Affleck was at the time. Obviously, this was pre Armageddon, but like, yeah, I mean, I well, I uh, going off of the story. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I didn't. Yeah, mean to go ahead. No, please go ahead. No, uh, I mean, going off of the story of how Chasing Amy came to be, it was a case of he went to Weinstein. This is Kevin's story. You know, his words. He said, "I went to Harvey and I said." I've got the script here. It is. If you guys want it that, you know, this is the budget that we're proposing that Mosier came up with and whatnot. It's going to be small. It's going to be in Jersey. It's going to be not like mall rats. It's going to be a much smaller scale, almost like clerks. And he said, you know, okay, we'll give you, we'll give you the budget you want, which I think was a couple of million. It was like 3 million was what they wanted Mm -hmm. to make it. And he said, but we've got to pick the cast, you know, you want to do this with Affleck. Who's not a name at this point, really. Uh, Jason Lee, nobody knows who he is yeah. at this point. And Joey Lauren Adams, who was, I'm not sure if Kevin was dating her at the time, but I think so. I think they were dating kind of in between Mall Rats and Chasing Amy. Yeah. So he wrote it for the three of them. Weinstein said, we'll give you $3 million, but only if we put in uh, names. We were thinking uh, John Stewart, David Schwimmer, and uh, Drew Barrymore. Mm-hmm. And that was a really weird uh, three that, you know, I think they just had overall deals with the three of them. So those were the ones they wanted to plug in. And if you look back, like think about big daddy. Yeah. John Stewart was somebody they were kind of trying to push as a guy who could be a leading man in something. So yeah, I, yeah it's, and I don't actually think he's bad as, as an actor. I, I think I prefer him as an no. actor than this weird pundit kind of thing that he's become. Um yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, I've mentioned this but, on on our Adam Sandler episode. The by the way, that I fucking I wish Joey Lauren Adams had like her trajectory. It's not that she's not in anything anymore. Her trajectory kind of like tapered, kind of blunted uh, after the '90s. And I think she is just so sexy and so funny uh, that uh, and and I think Kevin Smith really used her well. Yeah, he did. I think he wrote really well for her. He, he his voice lent really well to to her appeal mm-hmm. in chasing Amy and you know I mean he's he wrote a couple of other things little projects here and there because he's always moving like a shark like even when he's not making movies but my my kind of joke is that there are two types of Star Wars fans people that only watch the movies and throw everything else in the garbage and then people who read the novels and the comics and all of that stuff Kevin Smith, it's the same way. There are people who just know him as the the guy who makes those movies with Jay and Silent Bob Mm -hmm. and have no idea that he's constantly doing other stuff with his friends. Mm -hmm. So he was doing a bunch of stuff with her at the time. And I I had a point with the (laughs) casting 
Well, oh, 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 because Weinstein told him, we'll give you three million with these three that we want to make names because we have deals with them. And it's a cute story the way Kevin tells it back in like, oh, three, where he's like, okay, well, you know, how about this, Harvey? How about you just give us like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars? We'll go back to Jersey. We'll make the movie off of that. And if you like it, you can buy it. If not, we'll take it, you know, and shop it to somebody else. Actually, he asked for two hundred thousand dollars. And Weinstein, the punchline is Weinstein going two thousand. I'll give you two fifty. <laughs> and that, at the time, it's a cute story about how Kevin like totally undersold the budget of the movie, made Mosier's head explode. Now, in retrospect, it's like what a monster Weinstein is to be like. I'll give you two hundred and fifty. The guy had money. Yeah, you know he had he had the resources. Kevin Smith was not a hole in his pocket at the time. He was one of his, you know, the, the gems in his crown. Mm-hmm. Which again, uh, the, you know, you think of the power he wielded over people. That's that's something that people who wield power do is yeah. it, it's it's essentially manipulation. Um, so then Dogma, way bigger budgets, um, which you understand when you look at the the cast of that. Um, you know, you've got Chris Rock. One of like when Alan Rickman passed away, everyone talks about, you know, his best roles. And obviously you're going to have stuff like Die Hard or Harry Potter. I think Dogma is one of his best roles. He's such a wonderful, warm, calming presence in that movie. Absolutely. I agree. I think that I think that is my favorite Alan Rickman because it's also it's a different kind of role for him. Everybody thinks of him as like a baddie. Mm -hmm. Nobody thinks of what, like you said, a warm presence. He is in that just the scene where he's uh, cradling uh, Bethany and talking about the moment where he had to tell Jesus that he was the son of God. It's a wonderful monologue that I really wish I could have ever pulled off on stage. I can't. Because I don't have the presence of an Alan Rickman sue me for that. Mm-hmm. But no, I he passed away like the same week that I moved into our current place. So I'm painting the walls and moving stuff in. And I just had my laptop plugged in. I'm like, you know what? I'm plugging in Dogma. I'm just going to listen to that movie as I'm painting the house. And that was my goodbye to Alan Rickman. Yeah, um, there is one uh, movie that like no one has seemingly no one has seen um it's uh but i remember seeing it when i was like 10 or one of those random like grab it at blockbuster uh movies it's called blow dry and um it's it's set in england it's about like a hairdressing competition or something um and alan rickman i feel like i can see the yeah sorry go ahead he well, because yeah, Josh Hartnett is in it, and someone, and like, it's like marketed as like a teen movie on the cover or whatever. But uh, Alan Rick, it's Alan Rickman and um, the mother from The Parent Trap, who passed away uh, in the two thousands, Natasha Richardson, and um, and Aunt May from the Raimi Spider Man. Um, huh. uh, uh, and Rosemary Harris, yes, Harris, yes. yeah. Um, but it's. Uh, so he plays an old divorced British hairstylist in that. And that's like the only other non-batty movie he does. I'm going to have to search this out. Maybe it's yeah. on like a Tubi or a Canopy or something like that. One of them streaming services that has weird stuff. It's dull as dirt, but it's not bad. Like um, <laughs> it's, it's a good, uh, you know, a hangover movie, as as they like to say on We Hate Movies. Um, my favorite story, because I think I did watch the DVD commentary for Dogma, so obviously I own the DVD at one point, is that 
Uh, Kevin Smith made no bones about the fact that they didn't really like working with Linda Fiorentino, uh, who played Bethany, and that uh, Janine Garofalo, who had a really small role in that movie, that they kind of wished they'd given her the the mm-hmm. role that role when you watch it feels like it was written for a janine garofalo type you know yeah absolutely yeah and i i kind of wish we had gotten that too to a degree because it would have been great to see her as a lead in a movie that's funny but also is dealing with kind of big ideas i think that would have been really a lot more her speed than say the the truth about cats and dogs which is the <laughs> movie they let her be the lead in kind of co-lead in <laughs> once yeah so then uh, the next couple years bring uh, bring Jay and Silent Bob Strike back. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it was I I don't know how it was perceived at the time critically. I mean, it mixed reviews like what mi- the quote unquote mixed reviews can mean anything. But I do know that the the one liners from that movie had a fucking chokehold on my middle school. Oh, um, yeah. Well, yeah. and that was uh, that was around the same time that it, it was just kind of Jay and Silent Bob world for a hot minute because they were also at that time in screen three. Yeah, uh, for a minute. And then they were in the Afro Man video for because I got high. Mm-hmm. So there there were there were kids who had no idea what clerks was, but they knew who Jay and Silent Bob were because of that stuff. Yeah. So uh, then Jersey Girl comes. And like I said, like. I'm not anti-Jersey Girl. Um, it's more just that I think it 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 doesn't come across as a Kevin Smith movie to me. No, and no, I feel it like it falls into this trap of trying really hard to be like a lot of the romantic comedies of the time, and um, and also I will argue because like. There's nothing we love to talk about on Peak Show here uh, more than a good mismarketed film. And just like, you know, you're probably going to have a bad time watching Adventure- Adventureland if all you saw was the TV spots to say, from the guy who brought you super bad. Um, you know, yeah. Jersey Girl was marketed like Made in Manhattan. Um, it was, absolutely. And I think uh, that movie was just plagued by circumstance behind the scenes from the beginning because... <laughs> They shot it while Ben and Jen were together. By the mm-hmm. time they were in post-production, they were not together. So strike one right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, the actual script of the movie and the original cut of the movie is 40 minutes longer. Yeah. It's one of uh, those. I also think um, Ben Affleck, he is a leading man. I think this was a really bad time of him trying to be squeezed into these more sentimental or very human and relatable roles. Because, like, that's the one thing. I I don't consider Jersey Girl a capital R rom-com. It's more that it's trying to go for that Kevin Smith layer of relatability. I actually think Ben Affleck is good when he's not being anything close to relatable. I'm I'm neutral on him as Batman. He's not my favorite Batman, but I'm I'm one of those like I'm not like other girls. My favorite Batman is Michael Keaton. Um, but um, <laughs> like I I like Affleck when he's doing stuff like Gone Girl or you know playing playing uh you know Bartle Bartleby the Bartleby was the name of the angel. He was in Dogma, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like I like when he's doing that kind of dark shit. Um, I think Ben Affleck relatable dude is not something that I line up for. 
Um, so, and I, I do admire yeah. how much Kevin Smith went back to Ben Affleck. I feel like Ben Affleck, I don't want to say he owes a lot of his early success to Kevin Smith, but he certainly owes kind of the breadth of his portfolio and the versatility of his portfolio to Kevin Smith. Um, yeah, I would agree. But, I Sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, no, no. That was just kind of rambling. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with you. Ben Affleck, outside of Kevin Smith movies, Ben Affleck at the time, pretty much from like 1995, or really even going back to Dazed and Confused, from there through, you know, the Armageddon days and the Benefer of it all. I mean, hell, they did another movie together called Geely, and it's terrible, yeah. and they're both terrible in it, but... The thing that Kevin Smith does is uh, he writes for Ben Affleck as the Ben Affleck that he knows personally and not Ben Affleck's public persona. So he yeah. writes guys who are sometimes just just loudmouth jerks. Sometimes they're, you know, they're guys that chafe at just the slightest thing. You know, they're complicated people. Holden and Chasing Amy is a guy who is just a walking bag of insecurity, which mm. at the time if you read between the lines on a lot of Kevin's stories from the time, Ben Affleck was a bag of insecurity at that point. So mm -hmm. I think he captures a human element of Ben Affleck that hardly anybody ever can. And that's why in every other movie, Ben Affleck comes off as well. He's a movie star. He's an, he's an enigmatic, you know, face, but not a, not an actor. He's gotten better in recent years, but especially at the time you know in but in between doing like armageddon and daredevil he does jersey girl and it was actually affleck's idea he said you need to write me something like chasing amy that i can sink my teeth into and i do agree that the jersey girl that we ended up seeing it's not the best affleck in kevin smith that we've ever seen because we're only really seeing the back half of the movie that kevin wanted to make the first half of the movie, and as a consequence of, you know, test screenings and, you know, uh, Weinstein nonsense, it ended up being the first 10 minutes of the movie where we see Affleck as the less human, less, you know, the more chafing, arrogant, you know, prick mm -hmm. of a person. And then the big flip of the movie is supposed to be 40 minutes in. Instead, it ended up being 10 minutes in. Which doesn't yeah, work because of them cutting down Jennifer Lopez's role. Yeah, yeah, almost entirely. And I think the structure of the movie, it'd be much more of a gut punch when we lose her in that movie. If it was 40 minutes into this rom-com where it's two people who are actually in love that the public is fascinated with. And then mm -hmm. suddenly we lose her. And then what's the yeah. rest of the movie about? It's about him picking up the pieces makes a lot more sense than, all right, well, she's been here for a minute. Let's get her out of here so that we can forget that their relationship ever existed because oops. Yeah. Well, I mean, because that's the thing. Like, you're giving me the beginning of Up without the journey that Up goes on after exactly. the wife dies. Uh, so Clerks 2, I think if you... I I, I love math normally. Um, I'm not... I'm not being sarcastic. I fucking love math. Um, I didn't uh, get around to kind of calculating the ROI in terms of percentage, but I think this might just glancing at it be his, one of his biggest ROI movies um, so. because it was way cheaper than the last couple movies he did because aside from Rosario Dawson, uh, like it, the movie's full of nobodies. And even yeah. Rosario Dawson, she's definitely not a nobody, 
but she's always kind of been like just like B-list on the cusp of A-list. And, um, you know, like she was in one of my favorite, again, super underrated comedies of the early 2000s, Josie and the Pussycats. Mm-hmm. And she is so damn funny. And like, I feel like that's part of why, like, I think she was really underutilized in a lot of the 2000s is because they tried to make her like the hot girl or whatever. And it's like, no, she is really really funny um i I mean and all the best to her i think she is probably the best part of this new uh kind of chapter of the star wars uh cinematic tv universe really looking forward to her leading a series but um yeah she like clerks 2 totally so different than clerks 1 i i feel like they can really stand alone except that dante is to me a really really interesting character um and but I think like Rosario Dawson is the light and sunshine of that movie. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I, I t- to your point about the return of investment and you know the uh, her being the only real name in it, I think that also helped the production because that movie honestly looks really good. It's it's it one of his more visually dynamic movies. It's very poppy and colorful on purpose. Kind of you know a fun tongue-in-cheek juxtaposition to the first movie but i mean because they spent all their money building the movies restaurant it looks like a real movie and Mm. i think a lot of that comes from her being the only big paycheck in it but yeah it's uh clerks 2 was i mean i my my running theory on kevin smith is that every movie is a chapter of him trying to reconcile with where he is in his life. You know, clerks obviously is mall rats a little bit. It's mostly just kind of the same stuff from clerks over again, which it happens to a lot of guys in his position. Look at Robert Rodriguez with Desperado. It's just a more big budget version of El Mariachi. But (laughs) you know, when he got to clerks too, he's suddenly like, Oh, I want to say he is, maybe right about where I am, where, where you and I are age wise. We're like maybe a year apart, you and I, but we're, I was born in 89. Yeah. I was born in 88. So, okay. Yeah. So right about the time he was making clerks too, that was Oh six. So he, if I remember, yeah. Yeah. 34. No, he was born in 1970, 1970. Okay. So yeah, 36 years old. Yeah. Uh, Which, yeah, like that's, that's my brother's age, you know? Yeah. So he's cup, you know, he's, uh, kind of reconciling the fact that he's a dad now he has family responsibilities and that includes jay a lot of the reason clerks 2 exists is because and this is a really yeah yeah helping jason muse stay sober yeah and it's a really going back to evening with kevin smith the last bit of that four hours is him a guy asks him is jay and silent bob are they ever gonna come back to the movies and he says no no i'm never bringing them back because I don't want to overstay our welcome, you know, leave the party before it ends. I don't want to be Polly Shore. I don't want to be running mm-hmm. around my forties and my fifties. Sorry, something fell over on a table over there. Um, I don't want to be Polly Shore running around my forties and fifties, trying to remind everybody, remember this thing I did in the nineties that, mm-hmm. you know, that's still funny, right? That's still cool. Cause people hated Polly Shore by that point. And it's, mm-hmm. You know, it's sad because he's kind of doing that right now with Jay and Bob reboot and clerks. He's ex- I think 32 year old Kevin Smith would be, you know, flabbergasted with himself now. But I also have to keep in mind, 32 year old Kevin Smith was also kind of a pretentious dick at times. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> but the yeah. the fact that he used clerks too as a method of uh in uh an incentive for Jay get clean, stay clean, and I will put you in another movie again, and we can go and play, and we'll have a good time this time, because you won't be all messed up. And I think that's why that movie has a lot more heart than some of the others around that point. Mm -hmm. I I gotta say, between Jason Mewes and another one of my favorite entertainers, uh, Steve-O, you know, as someone who has lost uh, someone very close to them to drug use. Um, I love nothing more than the story, a story of a person who was really fucking deep into it and got sober, say, got sober, stayed sober. I know Jason Mewes has relapsed once, but he's been sober for more than 10 years. Yeah. Good for you, Jason Mewes. And, you know, Kevin Smith has largely given him stuff to do, whether it's movies or podcasts and stuff. And, um, you know, speaking as someone who also knows plenty of people in active recovery and passive recovery, like, giving them something to do is a huge thing for a lot of recovering addicts. So, um, you know, I think um, as much as I make fun of a lot of directors for like bringing in their staple of friends and stuff and like, hey, like, you know, like I said, anytime Jeff Anderson needs a paycheck. um, But I think you can see a lot of the heart in doing that. And like he's done a lot to literally create opportunities for people. So I'd say that's the best thing you can do with your power as a filmmaker. I do think, though, Lynn, you talk about the appearance of Clerks 2. You're right that it looks so damn good. And also because the aesthetic of it is so bright and so yellow, there's something about it that makes you feel like really relaxed watching it and really just like you want to go to movies after that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But um. I know there are some people, and by some people, I don't even mean critics. I just mean like people, like my fucking dork friends at art school uh, when it came out, that didn't like that about the movie because they like they wanted it to look like shit the way Clerks looked like shit. And I get it. I kind of felt that way at the time too because like I think it's it's totally so different that I almost don't consider it a sequel. But at the same time, now like you know, looking at it through thirty two year old eyes, and you know what you said about the phases that Kevin Smith has gone through, I don't, I think to shoot Clerks 2 in the way he shot Clerks would be so disingenuous. Um, And just almost, you know, there, and when you think about it, 2006, that was a time of like the beginning of the fake indie stage. And and like, I don't even mean this in a bad way, but like Juno really kicked that off in 07, where like everything had that very quote unquote indie look. You had Juno, you had Nick and Nora, you had 500 Days of Summer, like, and I know I'm naming a lot of rom-coms, but there were other- Things that have like, uh, their posters are all pencil drawn on a piece of notebook paper, right? Charlie Bartlett is another one I think of. Yep. Yeah, totally. And so um, that really wore thin after a while. So I think it's fine that Clerks 2 looks much more polished because it's he was a more polished director at this point. Um, but then you get the hyper polish of uh, and, you know, we talk about great ROI. Uh, you're pretty much going the exact opposite way with Zach and Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, hard to is it is it that it was hard to market? Is it that people didn't see it as you know a proper kevin smith movie because i would have thought you got seth rogan you got elizabeth banks and it's funny because even that was the height of judd apatow mania what does judd apatow have to do with this movie nothing really but people are gonna look at this like a judd apatow movie because well and, yeah it's got seth rogan and elizabeth banks well and, and that um, was the point i think Craig, uh yeah sorry go ahead 
Oh, I, I'm just, I can never remember the um, Craig, Craig Robinson. Yeah. That's his name. Yeah. Which I don't think he's been in a ton of Judd Apatow movies, but like, you know, it's this aside from, uh, you know, having, um, having Jason Mewes and Jeff Anderson in it, like this wasn't Kevin Smith bringing in his group. It was basically like, I smell a crossover. And uh, man, this just bombed to the point where it wrecked his relationship with Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. Um, It, uh, you know, seemed to uh, send everyone into a bit of a, a bit of a pit of depression. Uh, I love that the next thing he did was like a director for hire after because I'm like, oh, this must have actually like really hurt his self-esteem because it's not a bad movie at all. No, I would argue that quality wise, it's pretty similar to Clerks 2. Yeah, no, I I actually really enjoy it. It's uh, so this is where I get into my big Kevin Smith theory and I get a little crazy on you for a second uh like i love crazy <laughs> like i said uh earlier a lot of people say that oh when kevin smith started smoking weed for real that's when he became less funny when he became less you know of the like slacker intelligent that we knew him as and he became more of just like a walking joke you know like uh, mm-hmm. a, a poster saying pick me pick me and my theory is it's a little more complicated than that obviously he started hanging out with Seth Rogen. He started smoking weed. He, to use his words, his third eye opened up, et cetera, so forth. You ever hear a stoner talk about how weed has changed their life for the better, you'll fall asleep. But if if you look at all of the context of that era from like 07 to 2010, you see three big things happen. One, Zach and Miri bombs. Uh, well, mm-hmm. well, first one, the podcast begins because he starts Smodcast in 07 and finds a new way to express himself directly to his main audience rather than out into the ether where people can find him. Kind of like how the website mm-hmm. message boards were a way for him to communicate directly with people. This was a way for him to kind of, you know, not to be preposterous and, and uh, ridiculous about it, but a podcast is an art form to a degree and i would argue that the early days of smodcast it was a kevin smith style piece of art just to be literally shooting the shit with one of his best friends for an hour a week and it was totally free Mm -hmm. form there was no structure which was its structure and him discovering that i think is a bigger shift than the weed was uh but Mm -hmm. zach and miri to get into some of the things you're talking about with it was it hard to market yes but also that was this is the one positive thing that harvey weinstein might have imprinted on kevin smith is the ability to take bad press and turn it into more press in general he taught him that on dogma Mm -hmm. on dogma they were getting death threats from the catholic league and stuff like that and he kind of learned, oh, this big media circus around how this movie's so bad for Jesus and stuff, that's a way in. That's a way to tell people, if that sounds like your bag, come and check it out. And he did that with Zach and Miri. They rejected the first uh, one-sheet poster for it because it was too explicitly an oral sex joke. So he said, okay, we're going to make a poster that's just stick figures. And a stick figure standing in front of a stick figure camera And the tagline is, this movie's so raunchy, we can't even show you a real image from it, so we made this poster. 
which is silly and ridiculous and not a very good marketing gag, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. And it made a couple yeah, of headlines. It's cute. So mm-hmm. that was that was one side of it. But I wrote a whole big thing about how Weinstein tanked the movie by releasing it as counter programming on Halloween. Yep. Who's going to go see Zack and Mary make a porno on Halloween when you have Saw 3 and uh, Paranormal Activity 7 or whichever one it was at the time? I mean, there that was a really weird time for that movie to come out. But yes, but the greater Kevin Smith theory of mine is that he has these peaks and valleys in quality because he makes a movie that speaks to a very specific audience and then he tries to segue into something aimed more at general audiences he looks for mainstream approval to build on the small indie approval and that's always where he falters it happened with mall rats it happened with jersey girl and it happened with zach and miri and that was the last one where he was like maybe i don't think i'm gonna make super bad numbers i don't think i'm gonna make uh 40 year old virgin numbers but maybe i can make forgetting Sarah Marshall numbers. I think I might've mentioned this Mm -hmm. during the Judd Apatow episode, (laughs) probably, but probably that was, but it's relevant. That was (laughs) his idea though, was if Judd can do these movies, I can do them because not for nothing. I've always been doing them. These raunchy R rated Mm. comedies with, you know, guys like Seth in them. So maybe if I try to do that, it'll work and mainstream audiences will connect with me now because they've connected with him and it didn't work. And it, it did put him in a deep depression the two episodes of the podcast immediately after Zach and Miri tanks at the box office are called the talking cure part one and two, where he is he, very clearly he's in a bathrobe. He is stoned and he is depressed. He has gone off mm. his diet and started stress eating and he sounds like a mess and he knows he sounds like a mess. And he's always been very candid with his audience at that point. So he's just coming right out and saying, movie didn't work and I don't understand it. So, mm-hmm. so the third thing of my big three things that happened during that period that changed Kevin Smith is cop out because mm-hmm. he gets this opportunity off of Zach and Miri. Uh, I think it's Warner brothers comes to him and says, look, we know, you know how to make a movie for this amount of money. We've got a couple of projects at that budget level that we think you can handle. Do you just want to try somebody else's script? And for a minute, for a hot minute, he's thinking, maybe I'm done writing my own stuff. I'll just become a director for hire. Sam Raimi did the same thing where he just started becoming a studio staple in you know, like the late mm-hmm. 90s, early aughts. Like, oh, you know, here's uh, a simple plan was a big hit. Fine. Here's uh, for love of the game. Here's the gift movies that you don't think of when you think Sam Raimi. But they were all I, I think for love of the game was a success. A couple of them were hits. And whenever one of them wasn't, the next studio gig was down the line. Kevin Smith for a hot second was taking that route and then cop out happens. And well, I mean, let's get into cop out, but Zach and Miri, that tanking, I think was the end of him trying to make his thing, the old Kevin Smith thing work for general audiences because he just kind of thought if I can't do it with Seth and Elizabeth Banks and, all of this stuff going for us in this movie, then I can't do it. I'm not Judd Apatow and I never was. So Mm -hmm. it's a big pivot moment. The weed just happens to come right in the middle of it is my theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, 
I think, and you know, you'd mentioned there was one line I was kind of coming back to in um, our Judd Apatow episode, which was what made me kind of when I was looking for an episode, be like, "Hey, I'll talk to Kyle." Which is, you know, Kevin Smith said that he he'd ran out of kind of statements to make. He was no longer that young man with stuff to uh-huh. say, and I think that was. If there is one problem I have with Zach and Mary, for one thing, I I normally think Kevin Smith writes women actually extremely well and it's a very underrated aspect of him how well he writes women um and he writes relationships between men and women much smarter than a lot of people give him credit for i wish i don't i wish that he had more like women relationship with women and i don't mean that in a sexy way i mean like in a friend's Mm -hmm. way but um but um so I don't I think that has probably his weakest written women like the whole idea of like a girlfriend test and like the you know can men and women be just friends thing like that's such a underthought out like juvenile thing I think he is a better writer than mm-hmm. that but the other thing about Zach and Mary that I think is is there's there's no statement to it there's no reflection to it there's nothing about um about life about growing up I mean it's a little bit of like Zach and Miri have this kind of arrested development, you know, never quite left their high school days. But like, there's nothing they learn from this other than we love each other. Um, there's nothing uh, that they gain in terms of direction. Like, it's it's a very sweet little self-contained story because they find their little community. Um, I, I think Tracy Lords is really awesome in it. I love that she's kind of thrown she in She is there. pretty funny, yeah. Um, she's lovely. Um, but... Yeah, like there's not really anything that makes you reflect on your own life about Zack and Mary. It really is much more escapist. Um, I also think it might be one of his movies that is actually a little too scatological. I think the um, I think this shit explosion, um, that's too much even for me. Yeah. That, and I have a really strong stomach. I, you know... I've seen I've seen a lot of yucky movies. I saw Audition when I was twelve. <laughs> the the shit explosion is too much for That's me. That's fair, more than fair, and yeah. uh, and that is the the several frames of film that the MPAA fought him on for two rounds. They went two rounds with him on that mm-hmm. NC seventeen. Uh, that one, uh, if there is any message or any uh, you know statement or thesis to it. It would probably just be his love of making movies with his friends, because when you remove the porno aspect from it, it's essentially a movie about he and his friends got together and made clerks up to and including going to the community college and enrolling just so that you could get the discount on renting the film equipment. That's straight out of clerks. Mm -hmm. They did that. So I I think just just like you said, him stating I've run out of things to say that movie is kind of the Mm -hmm. last thing of him just kind of reflecting on, I've had a really good time by growing up, by not growing up and being, you know, a dork who talks about his dick a lot. And, you know, that move that the ending of that movie being, okay, so we're going to succeed now as adults by doing the unadult thing of making pornos professionally. It's the closest thing to a message it has, but it's pretty thin considering. And I would say you're absolutely right. The The relationship aspect is way too thin to hang the movie on. And mm-hmm. that's probably the main... And those are two charismatic people. Yeah. Like, they shouldn't... Like, I do think they were very cute together, but it just... It was weirdly paced. And uh, the... I think... 
I think Kevin Smith could just tell a more mature relationship story by that point. He, could. Uh, he was capable of much better. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how much we need to go into Cop Out because like, is, do you consider it a quote unquote Kevin Smith movie or not? Like, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I enjoyed it, but, uh, I consider it at I, very I, least. It's the movie that taught him. He didn't want to make mainstream movies anymore. It's the last stab at mainstream yeah. he's ever really had. And it failed mm-hmm. so, so badly, not just from a financial or critical aspect, but also it was such a painful experience for him that. He decided then and there, all right, I could, you know, just chalk this up in the L column and move on to the next studio gig. I'm not going to. I would rather, if I'm going to make movies ever again, I want to make movies that I want to make. And the big thing was he wrote Zack and Miri Make a Porno at the same time that he wrote Red State. And he submitted both scripts and everybody was like, well, Red State we're not doing that because that's a political nightmare. But this other one has the word porno in the title. So you've got two unmarketable movies here, Kevin. They rolled the <laughs> dice on Zach and Miri thinking, well, maybe you're right. Maybe you'll, you know, lock, you'll uh, break into that Judd Apatow coin that's going around right now. And Red State just kind of got pushed to the side. And that was the one I think he was much more interested in doing. I think it was uh, mm-hmm. in his head. I think Zach and Miri was one for them. Red State was one for him. It was going to be a little bit more like a dogma kind of exercise. And what can I get away with talking about to my audience? And cop out is this weird vestigial thing in between that. Like I said, it's it's the road not taken for him or taken, you know, maybe a couple hundred yards. And then he backed up quite a bit. Mm hmm. Um, so let's talk about Red State because I have, I, I watched Red State when it came out and I loved mm. it. And then I watched Red State again, oof, I want to say like six or seven years later. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I did I really love it or was I just 22? <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> um, now I, I kind of sometimes think like, would Kevin Smith's horror stuff, if he'd gone into it five to ten years later, would it be called elevated horror? <laughs> um, which I know is a term we all hate. Um, but like I actually think Tusk would fall more into that. Um why why do I have an affinity for movies where people get sewn into animal pelts? I do not know. <laughs> but um well, I mean Tusk is an A twenty four movie, isn't it? I think it is, yeah. But it's weird because as much as I love Tusk, it was something about it like really bothered me and I had no desire to revisit it. So when Yoga Hosers came out and I know I know it's not like a direct sequel, but I'm just like, oh, I don't know if I want to see this. Like, um, but like so I've been thinking about like, okay, when we think of elevated horror, the two biggest names we probably think of are Ari Aster and Jordan Peele. And one of the things about that and why I think I didn't enjoy Red State as much upon revisiting. I'll start with what I like about Red State, which is the casting. I think Melissa Leo is one of the one of my favorite scary actresses. She can send a chill down your spine. Um, you know, like there's a reason why Prisoners is one of my favorite movies, and it's largely yeah. Melissa Leo. Um, and um, a very underrated actor, uh, Michael Angerano, um, who uh, if you've been uh, piecing together this from the sugar packets of my podcast, you know that I really like the girliest thing about me is how much I love This Is Us. Um, he is amazing on that show um, as uh, young Uncle Nicky. He was also in like 
some of my favorite really unknown indie movies uh, of the 2000s, like Speak. So I I was really excited to see him. He's got such a weird face. Um, but yeah, I or and John Goodman. Yeah, yeah. Like, Everyone loves when John Goodman John shows Goodman, up. John Goodman, Kevin Pollock, um, and Steven Root are all in that movie, just on the periphery of what's going on, and they're all tremendous. Mm-hmm. So then, what is the difference between that and something like, speaking of Steven Root, Get Out, or um, Midsommar and stuff? And I think, like, what puts a lot of things in that quote-unquote elevated horror, John, and, like, you know, you can feel about, about that, uh, you can feel about that term how you want. What I will just say is, the best horror movies, which, you know, many very good horror movies have come out in the last 10 years. I would also say that, you know, Texas Chainsaw falls into the definition of elevated horror. Um, Is that, you know, Get Out uses storytelling and the sunken place to talk about an actual thing that people of color experience in day-to-day life. Us uses this fantastical story about doppelgangers and clones to make a big allegory about privilege and the haves and the have-nots of the world. Um, Midsommar is a is like a very long movie that is an ode to a broken relationship and talks about how, you know, victims of abuse and gaslighting are more susceptible to be abused and gaslit. Mm-hmm. Again, um, you know, I would even say Hereditary, much like The Shining, is, um, is a really hard look at the structure of the American family. Um, Red State uses no metaphor. It has its very very heavy-handed and the thing with kevin smith is he doesn't have a soft hand he's never claimed to be a soft hand guy but that's kind of why i think it gets a little tricky when he does something like horror that like he has the ability to do prestige like prestige level stuff in terms of writing and directing but he just he is not a subtle man and so how does how does that translate into horror well it's a little messy. It is. Uh, I, I would argue that his lack of subtlety is put to good use in Red State because just the way the movie is shot, the way the tension is ratcheted in the back half of it, or I mean, honestly, through the whole mm. thing in the front half, it's a very slow burn, you know, squeezing tension in the back half. It's very much a running up the stairs, having a heart attack tension. I think his lack of subtlety is a good weapon to convey that uh especially once guns start going off and the 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 score kicks in and blood starts you know flying all over the place it's it works i would Mm. say that with uh once you get into tusk and uh yoga hosers and the as yet unseen third chapter of that lark uh moose jaws I think he's injecting the missing piece that Red State doesn't have, which is Kevin Smith's trademark lack of inhibitions and willingness to be silly, especially post third eye opening weed journey that he's been on. He's, Mm -hmm. he's let down the inhibitions that I think were, uh, they limited him as a younger filmmaker, but they also reigned in some of his worst instincts at the time. So it's a real double-edged mm. sword of like, do- what would Dogma look like if it was made by post-Weed, post-Zack and Miri, Kevin Smith? Probably not as good of a movie because he would just let all sorts of nonsense fly that younger Kevin would say, well, hold on a second, let's back it off. This is supposed to be a movie about people and religion at its core. Red State is yeah. a movie about people and religion at its core as well, to a degree. 
and how it mixes with their politics and stuff. So I think him being about as subtle as a gun is good is a good pairing for that movie. But it's all it's also a case of he's missing that that silliness that he's kind of found in his older age, that willingness to look like a dopey guy because he's trying so hard mm-hmm. to make the message movie. I think in that instance that that that's the thing that it might be missing. But then again, that might be why a lot of people mm-hmm. think that it's the better of his three horror movies or four. Uh, I don't yeah. I don't know anything about Kilroy other than the NFT thing. Yeah, I I I don't know much about it at all um, because I hadn't actually heard about it um, until maybe a couple months ago. Um, I with Yoga Hoser, which again I haven't seen. There is one thing I was thinking. It's on the Talking Simpsons podcast. They mention on the uh, I think it's the Bart on the Road episode. You don't find a lot of references to Manitoba. Um, <laughs> In, in American media, aside from that's it, back to Winnipeg. <laughs> um, so I do I do like certain things in Manitoba, but so I like Tusk a lot. And to me, I look at Tusk as having all the things, and by all the things, I mean maybe two things about the human centipede that were interesting. Yeah. Um, which is the body horror, um, the kind of isolated, the isolation of it. Um, you know, it is, it is effectively a mad scientist movie. Um, but imagine if that weren't a weirdo fucking torture porn movie. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think Tusk is a really special little movie. Um, I understand why that's not going to make you a lot of money. Yeah. Uh Yeah. It's. It's a, how do you market that? You know, I mean, you don't really. The um, the only people who were going to go see Tusk were fans of Kevin Smith who listened to the podcast and heard. And I will say, as one of those people, it was a special moment. Uh, I listened to I listened to the show in the car quite a bit uh, when it when it was active. Mm-hmm. It's not really that active of a podcast anymore, but yeah. at the time, it was just him and Mosier. They would read a weird news story and then they would just riff on it for 45 minutes. It would just be like, can you imagine being in that moment? And it would turn into, Mm -hmm. you know, dorky comedy. But he was so captured in that moment with this is such a messed up story. This is so fucked up that a guy would say this in a public, you know, in a public paper in like the, the classified ads or something. And then over the course of the podcast, you hear him talking himself into this could be a movie. This could be something that I write. At very least, this could be something that I could write just to amuse myself. But then he starts thinking about it from the tech angle of we could do it like this. We could get this person to do it. And Mosher's not engaging any of that. As his longtime producer, he's sitting there going, you could try. All right, Kyle, I'm going to ask you a very condescending question. Are you sure your mic is on and functioning right now? Because we're about to get into the lightning round. <laughs> I swear it's on this time. I swear. So it's a bit of an old shame thing. But uh, listeners, for those of you unaware, there was a great lightning round uh, with uh, myself and Kyle um, and our Judd Apatow episode, which, oh, that reminded me, I meant to say this on mic. I have uh, since kind of relitigated my feelings about The King of Staten Island. I actually think The King of Staten Island is a very lovely movie. Um, yeah, I watched it uh, a few days ago because it just came on to Netflix and it was my first time seeing it since it first came out. And uh, I got to say, Davidson, uh, he's he's got a very specific 
type of role that he plays, but that's a great role for him. And um, thank you, Judd, for getting out of L.A. That's all. Um, <laughs> so, OK, we are headed into the lightning round uh, so that. No, it's just that we, you know, R.I.P. our Judd Apatow lightning round. You'll never know all my feelings about the Philadelphia Flyers that show up in that movie. Um, <laughs> so what is Kevin Smith's most overrated film? I I would have to say Dogma because it's it's his most universally praised movie uh, and rightly so. But people tend to avoid the glaring flaws in it, which there are some, you know, the, uh, in the performances, some some places, uh, the effects certainly aren't fantastic, but people are willing to overlook that. And it's never it's never been given, you know, as much lambasting or criticism as some of the other movies. Uh, my answer might upset a lot of people, but I actually think Mallrats is the most overrated. And it I know it's not overrated critically because at the time it was panned critically. My view is like, I don't understand how it became this cult classic. I think it was panned for a reason. And it feels like just trying to recreate the magic of Clerks. I feel like it's a little frenetic. Um, I'm also just not a huge fan of Jason Lee. Like I was really glad when he moved on from him. Um he attracts a weird amount of Scientologists, and by which I mean two, but like the fact that Ethan Suplee and Jason Lee show up in a lot of his movies, I'm like, you're like a weird Scientology magnet. Um, but um, okay, what is his most underrated film? Uh, Tusk, probably. Okay, yeah, I'm the same. I think Tusk is a criminally underrated movie. I think if, if he had gone into horror first with Tusk, I think it would have been a big moment of like Kevin Smith's reinventing himself. Like, yeah, it's a great movie. Um, okay. What is the line from one of his movies that you find yourself using a lot? Most of them are going to be from clerks. Like uh, I, I will use bunch of savages in this town kind of offhandedly quite a bit. Uh, but I also, I really enjoy, uh, <laughs> um, uh, 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 what you want grizzly Adams is one that I use quite a bit, uh, just because I, I have that reaction to big beards, especially, you know, people I first <laughs> met. <laughs> um, mine is also from Clerks. So first of all, anytime the number 37 comes up, it's always just in a row. Um, and a lot of my friends happen to be turning 37 right now. Like my best friend turned 37 last year and just like, 37 years my best friend's 37 years old in a row like um but for me actually it's it's not even a joke but I'll, uh, um it's randall in clerk saying no arguments here insubordination rules and um it's because uh in in my high school film and uh, film and video production class we had to create a like logo for our movies and mine was uncalled for productions and I needed to put a sound under it. And all I could think was, I'm just going to put that sound bit from Randall going, no arguments here, insubordination rules. And um, <laughs> I use that a lot at work, mainly because I, I think it's become an irony because I tend to follow the rules a lot at work and I'm not insubordinate ever. But um, I do love the kind of casual spirit of rebellion. Um, okay, Kyle, are you a Dante or a Randall? Oh, I'm a Dante for sure absolutely okay same here <laughs> i am very type a and easily annoyed and um never satisfied i i just avoid conflict so much like i would show up for work at 6 a.m after closing the night before anything to avoid a conflict whatsoever mm -hmm. yeah um and uh 
yeah, I, I have a tendency to enjoy complaining about things that I would have had an opportunity to change, but then preferred to complain. Um, all right. So what is a movie, um, a non-Kevin Smith movie that you think would have been better if it had Kevin Smith as a director for hire on it? Um, boy, I, I guess uh, if there's one that kind of combines the, the Catholicism and the uh, sex comedy stuff. It's not a good movie, so it would be better is 40 Days and 40 Nights, the uh, the Josh okay. Hartnett uh, No Sex for Lent movie. I just feel like it it it'd be right in his wheelhouse. You know, I think that I think that would work really yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned this earlier. Uh, waiting. I think waiting would have been yeah, great. Um, you know, again menial menial job observational comedy one of the things that i don't think works about waiting and i know this is unpopular especially in my country god i was sick of ryan reynolds back in 2005 like it's just (laughs) too much like that oh that movie is so quippy um but like i love john francis daly in it i love uh i again we got justin long there you go kevin smith really believes in him right Um, right but i feel like Kevin Smith would have made it feel a little bit more slice of life and not as quippy. So I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That movie uh, has a meanness to it, like kind of a cynicism that it could have used a little bit. Very mean. Yeah, yeah. It could have used some of his heart, I think. You're right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the fact that it ends kind of like all the tensions resolved and stuff, it feels very unearned. Okay, so of all the unrealized or unfinished projects he's done or things he was, you know, potentially attached to that never got done, uh, what would you have liked to see yet made? Uh, uh, I would like to actually see his uh, Fletch reboot that he tried to pull off with Jason Lee, (laughs) who, you know, I know he's not the greatest leading man uh, for the situation, but... Uh, it would have been an interesting combination mm-hmm. of the more, you know, kind of wry, cold-spirited kind of stuff from the Fletch books mm-hmm. and the kind of goofier stuff from the Chevy Chase movies mixed together. I, I would have been interested to see what he would do with that character and with that genre of uh, like a detective story. That'd be really interesting to see. I, I'd be like, I'd like to read the script for it, too. Although uh, superhero movies would be nice, you know, I, it would be nice to see him do a comic. Oh, see, my <laughs> my answer was going to be uh, the Green Hornet uh, because, like, that that movie did really flop. Um, but yeah, I it would have been a nice um, a, a nice opportunity to see him because um, he he is a comic book guy and he has such a love for the genre um whereas gondry who is like i he's one of my favorite directors but i i don't know if he is actually a big comic book guy i just don't think it worked very well whereas i think like the best the best movies in you know less prestige genres such as horror such as superheroes such as you know action are made by people who have a love of the of the genre um true now i think part of the reason the green hornet was kind of a flop is because uh the green hornet is not a particularly popular superhero um in comparison to because this was you know 2011 we were deep ish into the marvel cinematic universe at this point they had a lot to fight against but yeah and i I also think kevin smith works well with seth rogan like i know he had a bad taste in his mouth 
because of um, because of Zach and Miri. Um, I don't know if it's that they never want to work together again, but like um, I, I think he brought out uh, he brought out Seth Rogen's you know nice boyish charm, and uh, yeah, they were a good good duo. Um, Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, if you do uh, want to read any of his uh, scripts or see what kind of movie he would have made out of Green Hornet, I, he always makes those into comics later on. So the Green Hornet was a good run of comics, if I remember right, as well as his uh, $6 billion man. Hmm. Okay, um, if uh, he were to ever go back to into TV, do you think he would do best with comedy, drama, or sci-fi thriller? Um, I mean, the easy answer is comedy because it's Kevin, but I, I almost want to say it's kind of a cheat, a good mix of the three, you know, I mean, uh, something like something like Avenue five on HBO, that show that's uh, from the folks who brought you Veep, which is a, you know, it takes sci-fi sensibilities and sci-fi formula and kind of rejiggers it for comedic purposes and to draw some like personal drama out of it mm-hmm. between characters. I think that Kevin would actually really shine with something like that yeah. because he enjoys the trappings of sci-fi, but really all of his stuff is about character and about personal dilemma. So, yeah. well, you know, there was a tweet that I can't stop thinking about from the other day. Um, it was right after the Emmy nominations came out, which woot woot severance got a lot of acting nominations. Hooray. We stand <laughs> it. Um, by the way, guys, stay tuned for our season finale because there's some exciting news involving uh, Severance and um, something I can't quite reveal yet, but it rhymes with Matreon. Um, but uh, Ooh. I know, um, but that not that's you know that could be anything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, there was um, there was a tweet that was like, "We need um, the Emmys need two categories for comedy, like one for comedy." that's actually funny and it's true that a lot of the prestige comedy shows these days aren't comedies anymore they're they're really really melancholy um i mean it's kind of like how in like 2005 or 2006 i got really pissed off because walk hard won all the golden globes in the musical or comedy category i'm like that's not even a musical it's just a biopic about a musician and so i'm like (laughs) you're taking away from good comedies and yeah a lot of comedies that get the awards are, co- are not comedies in the sense that they're funny. So I actually would like to see Kevin Smith do comedy uh, on TV and do episodic comedy because I think he could actually do something that is, you know, good and, you know, a little prestige, but actually remember that comedy is supposed to make you laugh. And he is really good at doing things that you relate to because, like, like we said, half his ideas come from sh- him saying shit like, I think about this a lot, and so I wanted to make a bit about it. Um, yeah, right, I think right. I think Kevin Smith would be great in episodic comedy, especially because a lot of his early movies are so slice of life. Um, Acting-wise, who's your favorite Kevin Smith regular? Oh, um, uh, I guess I would probably say Stephen mm-hmm. Root. He Stephen Root's not one of his more... Uh, regular regulars but every time they work together it's always magic because i don't know they just kind of dig each other steven root is really funny in jersey girl uh behind mm-hmm. um george carlin while he's doing his normal george carlin stuff uh steven root is there with oh, i can't remember who it is who's the other guy it's uh it's mental oh mike from- star 
Mike Starr, yeah, mental yeah. from Dumb and Dumber, exactly. Uh, thank you. And uh, the two of them together are like these, you know, like teamster guys just kind of hanging out behind George Carlin through most of that movie. And it's always Roots always doing something great behind him. It's <laughs> terrific. I love yeah. his stuff. Um, so I had Steven Root, but since you've said Steven Root, because like I've made no bones <laughs> about my love of Steven Root throughout this podcast. Um, Absolutely. So I'll say Joey Lauren Adams um, as a as my close second place. Like she literally makes you do like you know a heart out of the eyes, awuga, love her. She like you know is it the always, voice. It's the voice. It's also I. I love all women, but women who have like really genuine smiles. She's got the most beautiful smile. Mm-hmm. And absolutely. Uh, yeah. Like, yes, she's incredibly sexy, but she, there's also something about her that comes across really cool. So, yeah. Um, he brings out, uh, you know, he's used her very well. All right. So now if you could replace a Kevin Smith regular in one of his films, so one specific role that he gave to one of his regulars with a different and or better actor, who would it be? Um, another kind of cheat here from the back end of his career is, uh, I would like, I would like to get Johnny Depp out of Tusk and Yoga Hosers. And that's a character who <laughs> I, I feel would be really good for, uh, Val Kilmer instead. Uh, unfortunately not possible anymore because of Val and his, uh, his mm. voice, but I think Val Kilmer would have done really well with that role as the, the hyper Canadian uh, Clouseau character. I think that's something he would be really mm-hmm. funny with, especially after seeing him and how funny he is in uh, MacGruber just a couple of years earlier than than Tusk was. So I, I I think Val Kilmer and Kevin Smith would have had a lot of fun playing around together, and they would have dug each other's just kind of love of art and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I. <sighs> I think, like I said, I'm really not a fan of uh, Jason Lee. Um, no, I don't want to say I'm not a fan of Jason Lee. Uh, I think Jason Lee, like you said, is not a leading man. Right. I also think that um, I hate to, I don't want to come on to come down too hard on how much he casts his wife in stuff um, because it's it's more that. I think it's much better when she's doing stuff like Zach and Miri showing up at the high school, you know, making a little a little quip and then she's gone. Um, I would have liked to see her role in Clerks 2 really um, given to someone else because it just she is a flat, very flat character. She brings nothing to it. Like she's she's just not the greatest actress, I don't think. Um and I would have liked to see, um, and yes, this is on my mind because we just did an episode on It's Always Sunny, Mary Elizabeth Ellis, I think, has that energy. You know, she's cute, but she's not a bombshell. She has that kind of like, you know, she she has that ganky girl style about her. She can like very cute little giggles. And I think if you're trying to convince me that Dante has a girl who is hot, but still someone that reasonably Dante Hicks can get with, I think that's that's a great choice. Um, yeah, I actually I would love to see anyone from the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia cast getting into any of his uh, any of his uh, work because I think like what he could do with a guy like Rob McElhinney, I think uh, would be really funny to see. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. All right, so. And this is definitely the weirdest lightning round question yet. But 
I keep Mandela affecting Kevin Smith into jackass in my head. And I, <laughs> I, I think I know why. I think it's the New Jersey connection because P.K. Subban was in the most recent jackass movie. So if Kevin Smith were to ever appear in a jackass stunt, what's, what kind of stunt do you think it would be? Do you think it would be, you know, an animal stunt, like a poopy stunt? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Kevin Smith and Jackass mixed together, it would probably be something scatological, like the, the hardware store toilet bit from the first Jackass movie. <laughs> I, I think that that yep. would be the right one, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't really see him doing anything crazy, like getting hit in the nuts or anything like that. So that would be more his speed, especially a man who wrote a book called Tough mm-hmm. Shit as, you know, based on a story in that book is the title so yeah uh, i also went in a scatological direction i could see him involving something with a porta potty um yeah. or <laughs> um or i could see him doing something like involving wee man like because you know i know kevin smith is not a super big guy anymore but you know uh he's uh, like something of him like taking wee man out of a backpack or something like that i think that could be cute yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the juxtaposition joke is always a fun one mm-hmm. uh, for him. The whole reason why he stands next to Muse, this, you know, skinny, silent boom of a character, sonic boom of a character, while he's, you know, standing very wide mm-hmm. and very still next to him. So I think he would enjoy something like that with yeah. Wee Man. All right. Well, Kyle, we have come to our conclusion to talk about the peak of Kevin Smith. When do you think Kevin Smith peaked? I'm going to say uh, 2006, 2007, so right like tail end of Clerks 2 era and then beginning of the podcast because that's really, I think that movie encapsulates all of his best uh, abilities as an artist, as a writer and director, and the podcast is the perfect medium for him. It's it's He found his home with a podcast because it was the most direct mm-hmm. way for him to communicate directly to his fan base without having to worry about being mainstream, failing to be Mm -hmm. mainstream. So I will actually say, um, because I always change my definition of what the peak is all the time, I would say there's something about Zach and Miri that I think represents a huge convergence for him because it's him, you know, working a little bit outside the regulars, um, just the slightest bit, you know, he's gone for a new leading guy he's gone for like trying to make his first true rom-com and no it didn't work but i i really think that you need to credit the ambition of it and also that represents a very important aspect of his career which is the divorce professional divorce of him and harvey weinstein um so and, and really that was that kicked off you know the last like, like you said, this was around when he started podcasting and stuff. So I would say it is a peak, kind of like you, I view it as a con- as a point of convergence for him. If we're talking quality peak, it's got to be Chasing Amy. I-, I actually don't think anything's quite come to Chasing Amy level since. Yeah, that's fair. That's, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So if you could recommend three Kevin Smith vehicles to a friend, what would they be? Uh, three is hard. Um, I, I would probably say the clerks animated series just because it's kind of the lost, uh, jewel in his crown. It's, it's, uh, you know, a writer's room full of great people worked on that show. So, um, uh, I, I guess, uh, I would also go with, uh, dogma just because it's his biggest message movie, the movie that speak, it's the most personal of his projects in the early days. 
And then uh, on top of that, I guess, eh, I want to say either one of the first two Clerks movies, but I, I would I would want to say Tusk because Tusk represents uh, that moment where he was most willing to just kind of go for it and what Kevin Smith is most uh, successful at, which is showing everybody, yes, you could make a movie. It is possible for a random person to make a movie. And that's kind of Tusk is him bringing that back around in a completely different way with a completely different tone and style. And it's, it's a big leap forward for him that I don't think a lot of people appreciated, but Mm -hmm. I certainly did. So I will say this is an odd mix. Uh, Chasing Amy, followed by Clerks 2. Because uh, like I said, Clerks 2 is a really good entry point because you don't have to have watched Clerks 1. Um, That's a good point. Followed by Tusk. Because I think that those are really good um, eras of him as a director. Um, Clerks 2, you definitely see more of the polish. Uh, you see his, how good he is at character. Um, Chasing Amy is really just the best thing he's ever done. Um, and then Tusk is, you know, like we said, that that era that he settled into of uh, being much more comfortable with himself and, like you said, seeing how far he could push something. So finally, our last question is, what is the gap between the best of Kevin Smith and the worst of Kevin Smith? Like, how wide is that chasm for you? Uh, not very. Not very wide of a chasm. Mm-hmm. I if you're, if you're willing to go all in on Kevin Smith and kind of clap at everything that he's willing to put out there... Um, like I, I think of myself as, uh, I, I have this oddly, uh, this parasocial thing with Kevin Smith where I feel (laughs) almost like a little brother, little brother to him, but also kind of a dad version of like, look at him, look, look, he's trying so hard and he's doing his best and he's making things that he likes. And that's the important thing. And I really want him to succeed. So it's not that big of a, a chasm. Uh, for me. <laughs> yeah. So the way I've, I've kind of done this gap thing for myself is like, oh, if this is an A plus, you know, what, you know, his worst is a whatever. No, no one else has to do it the way I do. But I'm trying to think, and what is his A plus? And I, I'm guessing Chasing Amy and Clerks are his A pluses for me. Uh, and then I think of what, okay, what's his worst? And I think of like, Red State is not great. Um, you know, I, I I would still put that as like a C minus. It's not a failure of a movie. Uh, so that's that's the gap for me. And even like I'll say Clerks and Chasing Amy are maybe soft A pluses. Um, you know, I don't think he, I think Clerks and Chasing Amy are very, very influential films. I don't think he has written like the greatest, written or directed the greatest films to ever uh, grace this earth. But as a result, I think the gap of quality is, is not a chasm. Um, and like I said, I think his worst would be like a C minus at best. So, all right. Well, Kyle, as uh, we say goodbye to our friends, let us let everyone know where we can follow you online and uh, read your thoughts on movies, the Seattle Kraken and more. <laughs> yeah. All of that is available on my Twitter, which is at Kyle Martinak. Kyle, as it's usually spelled Martin, as that's usually spelled. And then a K at the end, as if I'm from Alaska, but I am not. Uh, and then uh, you can read my long form rants uh, on the blog space, which is uh, media-sandwich.com. 
where I'm doing all sorts. I kind of revamped the site recently, started in a manic state, started writing new stuff recently. And so I've got uh, TV reviews, movie reviews, and even a uh, a little video where I reacted to a trailer for a movie that came out that was so bonkers, I had to show everybody what I thought of it. Mm -hmm. So that's all. Uh, And you can see posts from that at uh, on Twitter at media underscore sandwich. That's Mm -hmm. the the line for that one. Yeah. And you're on Letterboxd, correct? I am on Letterboxd, uh, also at uh, Kyle Martinak, I think. Yeah. Perfect. As for me, I've been your host, Bree Rohde, and uh, we are coming to the tail end of season two, you guys. We're so excited because August, August is super month, baby. We've got Eric Siska coming for our first episode of Star Wars, and then it's just Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars all month. Yes, we love Eric Siska on this podcast. We've had a few members of the We Hate Movies family. We've had Steven Sadak. We've had Justin J. Case. We've had, we've had Chelsea Jupin, who is kind of, I guess, a podcaster-in-law uh, to uh, to We Hate <laughs> Movies. And so we're super excited to be talking Star Wars with uh, Gleep Glop expert himself, Eric Siska. And then a whole month of Star Wars. Uh, if you want to go through our back catalog, we've got episodes on Taylor Swift, David Fincher, The Babysitter's Club, and a whole month on The Simpsons. So much more. You can follow me on Twitter at prune underscore underscore Tracy, uh, or you can follow this podcast, Peak Show, at Peak Show Pod on Twitter. Don't forget to rate and review us. Give us five stars or go to hell. Special thanks to Jared Daly for our show logo and all of its art, and thanks to Jack Dump for composing our original theme music. Thank you for listening. I've been Bree Rohde. Oh, shit. <laughs> I forgot to do my sign-off line. I normally do, like, a custom sign-off line. Shoot. Oh, let's think of a Kevin Smith line like a I got one, I got All right. one. Alright, yeah. Um uh, uh there are many fine looking women in the world, man, but not all of them will bring lasagna to you at work. Most of them will just let you on their podcast. <laughs> <laughs>